This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. The Iron Dome in Israel has saved countless of lives by intercepting indiscriminate rocket fire attacks fired from Israel's neighbors. I've never really stopped to think about whether or not the system complies with international law. That is, until I learned about the research done by Joel Block. Joel is an international military law researcher at Wits University and is, the, is currently the expert on missile defense systems. His work has been internationally recognized and he's the recipient of numerous military conference certificates, including from South Africa, France, the Red Cross and Israel. Joel, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Joel, how did you get involved in this kind of work? Yeah, so it's an interesting story. Um, we were offered a research course back in the day at Wits University. Uh, this was back in 2014. Wits University, they incentivized the course. So if you did the research course, you'd earn two credits, not one. So they dangled a little carrot in front of all the students. Some of my senior lecturers had done work with the Red Cross previously. And um, obviously, when you're looking at international law, the military side is something that does stand out very strongly. Given the opportunity of a blank check course, I was just bold and brave. And I said, cool. It was 2014. Um, Israel had first set up their Iron Dome system in about 2011. So I took a bit of an educated guess that after about two and a half to three years, there would be some sort of academic research on the topic. So I went for it. And it wasn't easy. And it was very unexpected and very difficult to even think I could pull a paper together. Even in my research course, um, kind of stumbled along the way, tried to pull some stuff together. But then it was only about a year and a half later when I actually returned to Wits. Um, the, the Wits writing expert, a guy by the name of Salim Nakjavani, who had actually worked in Israel uh, with the United Nations in Haifa. He was very interested when he heard about my research topic. And coincidentally, later in that year, there was a military conference invite from the Stellenbosch military faculty. So Lieutenant uh, Michelle Nell has, was organizing a, con- a conference in November 2016. And I was lucky enough to link up with the SANDF in Pretoria in 2016. I headlined that conference. I received a, a certificate from the head of the SANDF. And I basically used that certificate as my proof or my leverage to then crack things open further in Europe. So a, a year later, uh I landed up in Sweden. I was hosted in the Nobel Prize Hall. Absolutely glittering gala dinner. That was in June 2017. I met the Israeli missile defense team in Sweden. They were interested in my research. So I was invited to Tel Aviv one month later in 2017. I then took the topic further to the Red Cross in 2019 as a subject matter expert. And what's very interesting in the topic is you pairing artificial intelligence or if we take it one step less, you're pairing automated weaponry with violence. So that is something that is inherently controversial uh, before you start. So Israel's obviously gone a long way to set up a system. It's cost them, you know, millions, if not billions. Um, an interceptor missile costs about 50,000 US dollars, apparently. You know, so each time that system is given the, the go ahead to, to ignite and intercept a rocket in the sky, it does cost a lot of money, a lot of, um, human capital and human resources around the system. It's what's known as a human on the loop weapon system. So it is definitely human supervised. So that is sort of one of the ways that the autonomy 
of the weapon system is is toned down to to quite a degree. Just to clarify, you started off studying law, is that correct? Yeah. So yes. Yeah, so your focus was on law um, and international law, and then you yeah. took this path, and you've never looked back. Um, it's quite technical, though, what you do, and I think that's why I'm asking you because you know law has its rules, obviously, but then yes. warfare yeah. has its own different set of rules. And, yes. And, so yes. Yeah. So you might have heard of the Geneva Conventions. Yes. That a lot of people speak about not knowing what they are, where they came from, what they entail. Yes. So. International armed conflicts, they regulated by um, a supplementary protocol called Additional Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions. So essentially it's a research topic in international law, but very unique and very applied because you're not dealing with um, a band of soldiers, you're dealing with automated weapon system. And you're not dealing with a gun, with bullets, you're dealing with a missile launcher and missiles. So everything that you would imagine would have to apply, you've got to try to prove it. You've got to try to make your arguments as watertight as possible. And then the key question, basically, which, which I, I set out to solve was, is it legal to deploy a missile defense system in a country? Because the, the implications thereof are, are quite massive. If it isn't legal, imagine if Israel had to switch the system off. That's a nightmare proposition. The nature of war is also changing all the time. And we see it specifically in the Middle East. You know, it's not mm. gun versus gun. It's, you know, what you would call what incensory balloons, fire kites. Yeah. Uh, things are changing all the time. And Israel's right to defend itself needs to also be more sophisticated and change all the time. How does law keep up? So that is the very tricky and puzzling thing because you've got these two sort of opposing factors where you have some means and methods of warfare, which are very technical and very complex. So you have your, your, your drones, your remote controlled weapon systems, you have your automated missile defense systems, you have autonomous weapons, something which is termed a killer robot in the literature. That's basically a weapon system that may or may not exist at the moment. The machine can target, the machine can engage, and it can learn from its surroundings. So that's something on, on definitely on the more controversial and scary side of things. But then you also have these guerrilla tactics that you would have seen or at least heard about um, in the conflicts, um, especially in the Middle East. I know when I was in Europe, we were told twice at the conferences there that a missile garden system can be created by just moving around a couple of wires within a smartphone. These kind of improvised missiles that get launched, it's in a very, very dangerous and very unique and improvised um, kind of format. You also have the problem, um, they mentioned this up in Sweden actually, where these kind of rocket launchers, you see a lot of them on, on maybe on TV or on YouTube, someone's filmed them with a smartphone but they're actually incredibly difficult to target because by the time a rocket setup system is actually unveiled above the surface and a rocket is launched, it's very unpredictable, very unique timeframes, very small, short windows of opportunity to actually eliminate these threats. So it's actually a very, very difficult combat situation that Israel finds itself in. Find itself in. We're focusing on Israel, and I think your research is mainly there. Does Israel always comply with international law? Very difficult to say so, because a lot of things you can see on TV and you can analyze it um, in terms of the footage. 
or in terms of the situation, the way that we understand it. But it's impossible to say what's going on on the ground around terror tunnels in terror tunnels. Fundamentally, um, I managed to prove in my research that a rocket launch would be an armed attack against Israel. Um, that would trigger their right to self-defense, according to Article 2.4 of the United Nations Charter. It is also a violation of their of their national airspace. Um, the the fact further that it's a fire weapon comes into play because fire is somewhat like a radioactive weapon because when this fire lands, the effects thereof can be indiscriminate. It's not something you can necessarily control. So you've got – there are different ways that um, an attack can be indiscriminate. You just sum it up very basically. Sometimes a rocket could be launched indiscriminately, meaning that – you just don't pick a target that you want to hit. Sometimes the the weather conditions or the wind conditions can make the launch unstable. So that can also lead to a rocket attack being indiscriminate. You also have this example of fanning the flames. So, for example, a rocket attack, even if it's directed at a military location, that fire may not be controlled. And that fire can cause great damage to civilian infrastructure, it can basically, I'd say targets in the comments, but basically hit or attack civilian targets, which weren't meant to be hit. What you're seeing basically is war crimes um, committed from Gaza against Israel. And I would say that objectively, because my research, it's not necessarily Israel focused, because I'm taking the concept of rocket attacks, and I'm taking the concept of missile defense systems, and in a subsequent paper, I took the concept of fire carts and um, fire balloons, incendiary balloons, and it could happen to any country. If we were in South Africa, maybe there's a conflict with Mozambique, or maybe there's a conflict with Zimbabwe. Any country could launch rockets at another country in terms of an international armed conflict. And any country could actually also have a missile defense system. So, for example, in Africa, um, the SANDF were investigating setting up a cheetah sky shield system for our troops in, in the Congo to protect our assets over there. The German military have set up air defense systems to protect their assets in Mali. So as much as it, it does apply to Israel and it does apply to the conflicts that we see, it could actually apply anywhere. And when you go into these conferences in Europe, you actually start to understand that integrated air and missile defense is not a unique Israeli problem. At these conferences, I've met delegates from Italy, from America, from the UK, from the Netherlands, from Germany, from uh, Turkey. You'll see these sorts of weapon systems really deployed across the board. There are problems in Yemen, You'll see um, American air defense systems protecting airports in Saudi Arabia. Um, I've very interestingly met a guy named Ricky Ellison. Um, he's an American missile defense delegate. He actually runs an organization called Missile Defense Advocacy Alliance. And if you actually check out his website, you'll see the global reach and scale of air defense and the sort of issues that um, come about. He even runs a, a spot called Missile Defense Mondays on, on the Facebook page. So you can actually see what's going on in different conflict regions across the globe, what weapon systems are being developed, where these conflicts are going. And um, yeah, it's, it's actually 
quite important to stay informed. Wars are fought politically, in the legally, and obviously in the media. You know, we, we know that this is where it all takes place. But ultimately, and especially for Israel, a lot of the stuff ends at a, a legal, whatever forum it is, the ICC or whatever. Yeah. Do you see yeah. yourself as a lawyer representing the case for a state? So that's a tricky one because as a subject matter expert for the Red Cross, um, they've agreed with my research. Something like an armed weapon system, there isn't a previous legal paper on it. You won't be able to find one anywhere, which is quite boggling and quite puzzling if you actually think about it because it's been around for about 10 years. You're not going to find another paper. Where things get twisted massively is in the media. So, for example, I'm a military law expert from South Africa. On my Instagram, maybe I have 300 followers. So I can give a view on my Instagram accounts, let's say, and I'll go to 300 people. You could have fashion models like Gigi Hadid and Bella Hadid. who have about 68 million followers. They are not qualified military law experts, but they have an opinion and their opinion goes out to a vast number of people. Apparently, they have about four times as many followers as what there are Jews in the world, which is absolutely just, just a mind boggling figure. Where this whole conflict gets construed and gets tied up and twisted in the media is that a rocket attack coming in over a border into another nation's airspace, into sovereign airspace. That is a war crime, and it's indiscriminate. But because of the air defense systems in place and other passive precaution measures, you have your sirens, you have your bomb shelters. There's a lot that goes around the system. In fact, around Ben Gurion Airport, they apparently have um, three-dimensional tracking routes around the airport. So if a rocket's coming in and then a plane's coming in, they can actually divert their interceptor around the rocket or past the plane or abort the attack, whatever they need to do. So you've got indiscriminate attacks, which don't necessarily hurt people that can be intercepted, but are a war crime. Then Israel has this right to self-defense. And as I told you earlier, it's very difficult and tricky to eliminate these sorts of rocket attacks and these kind of threats. So your window of safety when you're flying over into enemy airspace is very, very thin, very slim, especially with all the sorts of projectiles and things that are being fired off there. Furthermore, where the whole debate really hits a rocky bump is actually that's Article 51.5b of Additional Protocol 1, which is the rule on proportionality. Now, the rule on proportionality basically says that there can be civilian casualties in an act of self-defense, which is legitimate, that's aimed at a military target. However, it cannot be excessive in comparison to the military advantage which you anticipate. So essentially, if you have a high-profile target, such as a tunnel system, which is obviously a very highly packed uh, military objective, the, the weight of that objective is tremendously high, but such a tunnel system might be located in a civilian area. So now the Israeli Air Force commanders have a very short window of time to decide, well, we know that weapons are are coming through this tunnel system. We know the military advantage is very high, but maybe it's located next to a school, or perhaps it's uh, next to a pharmacy, or perhaps it's next to an old age home, or there could just be civilians just casually walking around that area. But they have the intelligence and they say it's mapped out. So then you see these airstrikes happen. And when they commit these airstrikes, 
again, you, you're, you're acting in self-defense. You're targeting a military objective, which might not be seen, which might not be even, even overt to the public eyes. It can be underground. It can be covert. You know, they've got apparently miles of tunnel infrastructure, you know, concretized. You can't even see what's going on down there, but you might have the intelligence of where these things are, maybe through phone calls, monitoring, etc. So basically you have this whole proportionality analysis. And when Israel acts in self-defense, some civilians inevitably will die because there's this short window of opportunity. And it's, I would argue it's even shorter when you're sending in physical pilots as opposed to, let's say, a drone strike. Because with a drone, you have that extra time. You can send the drone back. You can circle around and really make sure that the area is clear. But when you've got a pilot, you have to remember that these Israeli fighter pilots, their lives are on the line as well. They're entering enemy airspace. You see, so where the arguments get construed is prior to the attack, Israel would have to act with precaution. And now the rule of precaution basically says that you have to clear out civilians before you attack. So these are things like the phone calls, the pamphlets. Um, they have a technique called roof knocking where they drop a projectile on top of a roof to warn any civilian occupants who may still be in the structure to please evacuate the structure. So Israel's acting in self-defense, so long as they act with the correct precautions, which I mentioned, act with distinction, which is aiming at a military target, and the the anticipated military advantage is not ex- – sorry, the, the anticipated damage to civilians is not excessive according to the anticipated military advantage, then they've acted in a proportional way. But unfortunately, what you would have seen in this conflict is 2000 – Rocket attacks, each one a war crime in itself. Okay. Maybe they hurt someone, maybe they don't hurt someone. When Israel's coming in in self-defense, people are going to die and there's going to be excessive, um, damage caused. Okay. But in terms of the rule of proportionality, it's always a, a weighing up situation of saying, is the damage that's going to be caused to civilians, is it or is it not excessive? Okay, not to be confused with the word extensive, because extensive damage can be done to a military target. It's excessive versus extensive. So is there going to be damage and is it going to be excessive according to the military advantage gain? And that's in that way up situation where the the whole conflict. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for the invite. Uh, that was Joel Block, who is a current expert on missile systems and international military law researcher at Wits University.